I want to speak to you about what a covenant is. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. So let me ask you this. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? It's a what? A promise? An agreement? Some people would describe it as a contract, right? So a, a covenant can be all of those things, an agreement, a contract. Now, there are two types of covenants. There are conditional and unconditional covenants that we see within the Bible. Technically, by law, I'm not an expert, I'm not a lawyer, but I do know someone who is. Um, We may have other kinds of contracts, but biblically speaking, we have conditional and unconditional. What does a conditional contract mean? What do you think? Some of y'all are like, I did not come for Law 101 today. <laughs> I hope you did, because that's what the gospel's all about, Law 101, and you can't keep it. All right, so in a conditional contract or a conditional covenant means this. There's an agreement that we have. I am going to uphold my side of the agreement, and you are going to uphold your side. And if you don't uphold your side then it's nullified, and that covenant does not stand. All right? That is a conditional covenant. So an unconditional covenant covenant means that there's two parties, me and you, let's say, and if I don't do something, you're still going to do your side. That doesn't seem fair, does it? We're used to conditional contracts, covenants. In the Bible, you see... Um, these are some of the covenants that we have. So let me ask you this, because this started a rabbit, a rabbit hole expedition for me this week. So when we talk about covenants, there's the old covenant in the Bible and the new covenant. We know that the new covenant is, is Jesus related, right? It's about grace. It's the fulfillment of of the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Covenant prophecies, and it's about Jesus and His grace and His goodness, and there's forgiveness and remission of sin through His blood. That's the New Covenant. But what is the Old Covenant in the Bible? Some of y'all Bible nerds going to eat this up. What's the Old Covenant? Man, who said law? Anybody thinking law right now? All right, law is part of the Old Covenant, but that's not it. There's also, so that was called the Mosaic Covenant. Before the Mosaic Covenant, there was a, that was through Moses, right? Mosaic, Moses. There was the covenant God had with Noah, which was the Noahic Covenant, right? And that covenant was, I will not destroy the world by water again. I won't do it again by water. Is that a conditional? Meaning, you have to live up to your part? Or is that an unconditional agreement that God gave to us. You can't destroy the world with water or fire or anything else, so it's really up to God to do that, right? So that's unconditional. So there's an unconditional covenant with Noah. Then we see with Abraham, there is a covenant. And this is in Genesis. And we see that God makes the promise in a covenant with Abraham that he would multiply his people and he would make them as numerous as the seashore and that he would always be their God and that they would always be his people. That is the Abrahamic covenant. 
That was unconditional. God made that one with Abraham, but Abraham was basically put to sleep and saw the Lord pass through the the pieces of an animal, which was the symbol and the sign that said, if I ever break this covenant, may this be me. May I be torn in two like these animals that we just walked through. Except Abraham wasn't walking through it. That's how they would, they would hold hands and walk through, it's kind of gross, walk through the pieces of the goat together or the bull or whatever animal they would use as as the symbol of their covenant, and they would hold hands and walk through, and on the other side, they would say, now we've made this covenant, and may I end up like that goat or that bull if I break this covenant with you. God put Abraham to sleep and walked through it by himself. That was an unconditional one. And then there was the Mosaic covenant, which was the covenant of the law, and that one was conditional. You read about that in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus, and it says, do this and I will. Do this and I will. But if you do this or this or this, then I will. So that side had both sides, at, or that covenant had both sides at play. It was conditional. And that was the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law. And then you look at the next covenant, which was the Davidic covenant, which God promised that it would be David's line and David's lineage, someone from his family, that would be the Messiah, the unending king. That was an unconditional thing. So all those things I started looking at, and I got to thinking, man, there's this covenant that takes place. And Jesus talks about fulfilling the old covenant and turning to the new covenant, and him being the new covenant in his blood, or his blood would bring about the new covenant. So verse 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take it. Eat it, this is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is in the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we will see the significance of of what a covenant is. And we pray that we will see the significance of the background of when that covenant first took place. Father, I ask that you will be glorified in all that we do, work in our hearts so that they'll be pure as we take this Lord's Supper after, that, that, we, will, that we will look within ourselves to find any wrongs. Drag them into the light and may your spirit expose it within us. May we turn from that, repent of it, and come to you. We thank you and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, I'm going to jump back into the covenant of the law that was given to Moses to give to the people. All right? So I'm jumping around here. 
You ready? The book of Exodus. You don't have to go there. We're just, most of y'all know this story. God pulls Moses out from, from wandering in the wilderness, working for his father-in-law as a shepherd after Moses was raised up as, a, as royalty in the Egyptian royal house, I guess you could say. Moses kills somebody, then he's on the run. That's when he's on the backside of the desert, out in the middle of nowhere, working for his father-in-law, that would become a guy that would become his father-in-law as a shepherd. Y'all with me? Y'all know that story? Y'all seen Prince of Egypt? All right, good. Or just read the book of Exodus. So now, Moses sees God in the form of what? A burning bush. He's like, man. That's a burning bush. And what does God say? He says, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. And he gives him commandments to go back to Egypt and do. And amongst those commandments, he goes back to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go, right? So, some of y'all got that. So he says that to the king of Egypt, and the king says what? No, not gonna. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then we see God harden his heart. And Moses says, all right, if they don't go, then this is going to happen. Ten times bad things happen. Those are called the ten plagues of Egypt, right? And I'm doing a lot of summary here. So the ten plagues of Egypt happen. And on the last plague, the tenth plague, it was going to be a plague of the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. You remember this? All right. So, has the covenant of the law taken place yet? Not yet. Hasn't yet. Moses hasn't known God like that yet. That's going to happen on Mount Sinai after they escape from Egypt. Oh, I ruined the story for you. All right. So, what ends up happening is that that night, the night that the firstborn child would die, the firstborn son, the plague was about to happen and the angel of death was going to come and every firstborn male was going to die in every household that did not follow what God, through Moses, was instructed. You know what that was? Take a lamb, a year-old lamb. You're going to slaughter it. You're going to take its blood in a basin. You're going to take a stick of hyssop, which kind of has like a little cotton ball type of thing in the end of it. You're going to take it. You're going to dip it into the blood, and you are going to paint the doorposts with the blood of your house. In every house that has the blood applied, you will not reap the consequences of faithlessness to God's word. Pretty simple, right? Joe would be like, oh, Dad, you better paint that, you better paint that door up. So we have that taking place. Now, that is called what? What holiday was that? Anybody know? Passover! Because the angel of death would pass over their house. The next day, guess what happens to the people of Egypt who weren't going to get the vacation, the, the three-day vacation to go and worship God? 
Pharaoh sends them out, kicks them out of Egypt and is like, you know what? Go. We don't want you here. We don't want the problems that your God brings us. Just go, get out, and leave. And here, take some of this gold with you. And they send them out with, with parting gifts. That is how the first Passover took place. They go out into the land. They cross the Red Sea, right? You got Charlton Heston standing there. Or Moses, I always get the two confused. right? You got Moses standing there at the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parts, and the Israelites cross the Red Sea. They escape Egypt. Egypt said, ah, we shouldn't let them go. They pursue them. What happens to the Egyptians as they're crossing through the Red Sea? Whoosh! Water comes down, they all drown. That's what takes place. Now, they make it to the other side. They're in the wilderness. And God gives Moses the law at Mount Sinai. And the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant, Mount Sinai, takes place. And you know what one of the first things in, the, in that covenant is? Observe Passover. It is necessary for you to do what I tell you, and you will observe it. Now, for years, that law was, do what I tell you to do, and I'll bless you. Don't do what I tell you to do, you're going to get the consequences of it. And you see that throughout the Bible. Passover feast. Now our focus here is going to be the Passover feast. You understand the covenant, and we'll get back to the covenant after for the Lord's Supper. But the Passover feast was something that was necessary for the people to observe. Forty years go by. You know how many times they observed the Passover feast that we know of in those 40 years of Moses wandering in the wilderness? Zero. Isn't that crazy? We don't ever see it recorded. Now, could they have? I don't think they do because we see in Joshua that they are going to observe the Passover feast for the first time since the desert. So we see the Passover in Exodus 12. Then in Joshua 5, we see that they are going to have the Passover. And what happens with the Passover? Revival breaks out afterward. God's people are on a high and great things are happening. They are in obedience to God and His Word. They're following the, the Passover regulations. They're doing it. And they're not just doing it to do it. They're doing it out of love and joy for God. Why were they doing this in Joshua? Because Joshua just led them into the Promised Land and they crossed over the Jordan and the Jordan was stopped up and they saw a miracle just like their, their grandparents did back in the Red Sea area. They're like, wow, this is amazing. They have Passover for the first time. Amazing things start to happen. Walls of Jericho come down shortly after. They are taking over town after town after town in the promised land that God promised them way back in Egypt. 
And they are having victory and victory and victory because the battle didn't belong to them. Who did it belong to? We just sang about it. The battle belonged to the Lord. They were just obedient. Obedient in the form of following a Passover feast. Mm. The next time, and we don't see the Passover feast being held a whole lot in the Bible. There's only certain places where you see they are actually celebrating it. Now it's mentioned, yeah, Tony, it's mentioned multiple places within the Bible. It is. It's mentioned how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, all that kind of stuff. But you don't see it celebrated by the people. Even in John chapter 2, it's in the background. The Passover feast is taking place and going on. But it doesn't show that the people there were celebrating it as part of the main text. You know what happens every time the Bible mentions Passover feast being celebrated? Revival breaks out. Miracles break out. Amazing things start happening. Now, let me take you to the next spot there. So that was Joshua. Then in 2 Kings chapter 23. Now this is about 600 years before Jesus and about 1,800 years after Joshua. There's a king by the name of Josiah. And Josiah finds the book of the law. And you know what he reads? We ain't been doing this, folks. We need to start. And the people, guess what festival they they behold and they do and they partake of? The Passover feast. And you know what happens? Thousands of people renew a relationship with God. They're drawn closer to God. Revival breaks out after Passover takes place. Why? Because they observed it and they didn't just observe it. What's the difference between observing and celebrating? I can observe anything. I can observe traffic going down Highway 2. What's the difference between celebrating? Yeah. There's There's me excited about it. I'm not just going through the motions. I'm not just looking flat. Wow. I am a part of it. I am involved. I am invested into it emotionally, spiritually, and I am ready for it, and I am excited about it. That is the difference in observing and celebrating. Celebrating Passover. Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 35, talks about the same thing with Josiah. But in that one, it mentions there hadn't been a revival like that since back in the days when Samuel, from 1 Kings, celebrated the Passover feast. So we see that it was mentioned about Samuel leading a Passover celebration, and revival broke out there. See what You see the pattern now. It's starting to be established from the book of Exodus to Joshua to, first, to 2 Kings to 2 Chronicles, pointing back to Samuel. 
And we see that taking place. And then it's mentioned again years later in the book of Ezra. Now, I don't know if you know your church history and all that kind of stuff, but from the time of 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles to the time Ezra was written, the nation of Israel was captured. Judah was captured. Jerusalem was owned by multiple different nations that came in and instituted pagan practices. But in the book of Ezra, a remnant is sent back. A group of people is sent back to Jerusalem and they are starting to rebuild. The book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra, they kind of happen together chronologically. They are starting to rebuild the temple. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And in the book of Ezra, they observe... No, 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 no. They celebrate the Passover feast. What happens? Again, revival breaks out. People are drawn closer to God. And then there's really nothing until Matthew chapter 26. What's taking place in Matthew chapter 26? Take a guess. Take a guess. A what? The what? Say it again. Passover? Did someone say Passover or Lord's Supper? Both! Because the Lord's Supper was at the Passover. Jesus was like, hey, I'm looking forward to celebrating this Passover with y'all. He didn't quite say it like that. That's the TCV version. But Jesus was celebrating the Passover with the disciples at the Last Supper. Who did John say that Jesus was? When he first, John the Baptist, he saw him and he's like, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was Jesus. What did they have to slaughter on the Passover? A lamb. Oh, man, this is getting good. I'm getting goosebumps and I'm hot. found this out. There was a guy by the name of Dr. Taberly who was apparently some sort of archaeologist who did some research and stuff like that. And he found out in Jesus' day how they did the Passover feast. How they observed the Passover feast because they didn't really celebrate it back then. They were making money off of it. Remember Jesus was turning over tables? That happened because people were buying Passover sacrifices at a marked up price getting ripped off. Jesus when he's celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples, it was common practice in those days for the butcher, the priest, to sacrifice the animal. Well, let me just stop right here. Because this is what happens in God's Word. If you went back to the book of Exodus, who was supposed to slaughter a lamb? Anybody know? The what? The family head. The head of the household was to take the, the lamb off it, take its blood, dip it, paint the walls, the, the doorposts, to the front of the house. You know what it was in Jesus' day? We're going to take our lamb and bring it to the priest. Here, priest, do for us. 
Everyone was supposed to do their own lamb. Just like sacrifice and the whole sacrifice system, people were supposed to do their own sacrifices, but so often, and it just became commonplace, that people would take it to the priest and be like, here's my lamb, do it for me, give it back to me, we'll eat it later. Right? Nobody could butcher their own stuff. Only the priest could. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Everyone was supposed to do their own. So, <laughs> There's a sermon in that, trust me. Y'all can hear it already. I'll save you the time. After the priest was done butchering the lamb and skinning it, they would take two staves. Now, this wasn't just from this guy, Dr. Taberly. This is also from a guy who was named Justin Martyr. Now, Justin Martyr, poor guy, probably lived up to his name. He lived a hundred years after Jesus, basically. And he verifies this claim, or he's the one that I think sparked the claim that Taberly made. Two staves, two posts, two spits of wood, if you will, were taken and run into the lamb that was slain. Except they didn't put one on one side and one on the other and then, you know, do it like a roasting pit like in Bugs Bunny. Or Wiley Coyote when they're getting ready to cook them. Anyway, they stuck it one vertical, the other one through the shoulders and arms to create a what? <laughs> a cross so that they could take that animal, that slain lamb, spotless and unblemished, and they could take that lamb and take it and give it to the head of the household who would then take it back to their family. They would roast it and eat it. A crucified lamb to become the sin of the world. To become the sin for each and every household so that they could observe celebrate the Passover. And you look back at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. There they were. And the way it was probably prepared for them was this lamb with a skewer going through it this way and one going vertical on a little cross. And as it was roasted, as it was absorbing the fire in the heat, I'm wondering what Jesus is doing looking at that going, that's going to be me tomorrow. I am going to take the fury and the wrath and the fire and the judgment from Father God on behalf of the world. And He would literally become the Passover lamb on that cross. The sinless one would follow the Father even to the point of death. Yes, death on a cross. So that we in Christ could become the righteousness of God. So that we would have a way to connect to God the Father and observe Passover. Did I say it? Yeah to celebrate Passover. Jesus 
when he's sitting there with the disciples. Even one who would betray him that we just mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11.26, one would betray him. He's sitting there with them. And what does he do? He says, this is my body. And he's holding up the unleavened bread that they were instructed to cook at Passover. And he holds it up and he breaks it. He says, this is my body, which will be given up for you, which will be broken for you. And then he takes the cup of wine. He says, and this is my blood, which was shed for you and for all for the remission of sin as the new covenant. Not this old thing of observing tradition and sacrifice and going through the motions and saying, I don't have enough money for a lamb, so I guess I'll get a goat. Not that anymore, but it's now your heart and not just your actions of checking off the boxes and going through the motions. It's about worship. It's about worship. It's about understanding and knowing who the lamb that was slain is. 